Hello, how's everybody doing today? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So today, what I will be doing is I'll be doing a uh, bit of a lengthy response to um, Jake the Muslim Metaphysician and his objections to the Incarnation. Um, I might do a little Q&A at the end. We'll just see how, how things go. But the way I want to do this is first, I want to give a brief, brief overview of... Um, Orthodox Chalcedonian Christology, uh, for all those who aren't aware. And then second, I want to go into a bit of a lengthy exposition, looking at some texts from St. Thomas and such that will really help us contextualize this, um, this debate. So if, you, if you're not in for the second, you can, um, you can just skip. You can just skip it if you, if you don't want to um, sit in for all that. You just want the refutation because the refutation is going to come third. It won't probably be for another uh, 30 minutes, but uh, for the first half hour or so, I'll just be discoursing on the incarnation from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, I'll bring up a text from St. Cyril. Um, and then also I'll get into um, Father Reginald, Gary Grew Gary Lagrange and um and his exposition of what it means for uh, a person to be a person, because this is very important to understanding this debate. And first, before I before I begin, I just want to um, to make it clear that I have a great deal of respect for Jake. Um, it is very difficult to attempt to step into the shoes of a different tradition, to read, to understand, and then to refute. That is a difficult thing. Um, I wouldn't be able to do that with Islam, uh, but this is why I'm just doing a defense of, of the Catholic faith. So that is something definitely to be commended. But um, if I seem a bit upset or agitated, um, it is upsetting um, watching the video of his refutation because um, it feels like he's been misled. There's a lot of um, evangelical philosophers, uh, especially William Lane Craig, who feel like the Catholic faith is their plaything that they can do whatever they want with rather than just passing on the tradition and the faith which they have received from their fathers. So it is a bit upsetting. It's, it's sad um, to, to see something like this, but I hope that this video will clarify some things. And then um, just to you, Jake, if you ever happen to watch this, I am open to a discussion about this. Um, I'm open to... Um, a disputed question on this matter. I'm open to really anything uh, to further the dialogue, but um, this video isn't it. Uh, not not this video that I'm recording, but the video that you produced. It it just isn't it. Um, it's it's not good. It doesn't properly express the fullness of the Catholic tradition in its uh, Christological doctrine on the incarnation. <laughs> It really takes um, some statements uh, from some evangelical philosophers, so-called philosophers, they're sophists, who uh, badly represent the Christian tradition on this matter and um, fall into heresy in some cases, as you see with William Lane Craig. Um, so that, that invitation is open. Um, this isn't meant to be rude or anything like that. This is meant just to be a corrective and um, to help you in your understanding of the Catholic faith.
Okay, and uh, before we begin, Mongoose Man said it would be great if you could some other time respond to Muslim objections to the Trinity. Yeah, I hope to be doing a uh, series um, over the next few weeks. I'll be responding to a few videos, some from Jake. Uh, hopefully, I'll see some from others. And there are refutations of the Incarnation. And then after that, I, uh, I look forward to doing a few videos on the Trinity. Because as St. Thomas teaches in the prologue to the Compendium Theologiae, the Trinity and the Incarnation are really the central two doctrines of our faith, and that is from which our faith flows. So let's get right into it. I'll do the, um, the quick overview first. Uh, let, me, let me get my notes up. So um, when we're thinking about Trinitarian doctrine, uh, we have one hypostasis or person, um, and then a person is defined as um, an individualization of a rational nature. And then we have two natures, which uh, is defined, the best way to think about it is a set of attributes. Um, so for example, um, human nature is rationality combined with animality and animality. And then also, um, when we think about the incarnation, it is the hypostasis, so that individualization um, of the logos, of the second person of the Trinity, which takes upon and within itself the nature of uh, human nature. So human nature is described as anhypostatic. So um, it does not have a hypostasis of its own. It's individualized in the hypostasis or in the person of the second person of the Trinity. So there's, that's just the, uh, the quick and dirty of the incarnation. And then um, another important aspect of this is to think about uh, the linguistic dimensions. So um, there is what's called dual predication and then single subjectivity. So dual predication is referring to the fact that when we speak of, of Christ, we can speak of some things according to his humanity and then other things according to his divinity. So if we're thinking about the phrase, God died, that would be in accordance to, uh, to the Logos's um, hum uh, divinity, humanity. And if we think about other phrases such as uh, God or um, in, in the hypostasis of the Son created all things, and that would be according to his divinity. But what makes this non-Nestorian is the fact that there's this single subjectivity. So notice the predicate, meaning the, the subject of both of those sentences, God died and God created in reference to the Son, both has the subject of God. So all of the actions of Christ have a single subject due to the single personality of uh of christ so now for those that don't want to hear the next part which is going to be this really in depth going through some texts by thomas uh you can just skip ahead about 30 minutes uh and then i'll i'll then start refuting the video so the first really helpful text let me get up my my aquinas reader for you guys the first important text is going to be from the Compendium Theologiae. So let's get into it. 
believe, what did I? There it is, the Compendium Theologiae, very important text. Unfortunately, it was unfinished. And then it is two, chapter 211. So Compendium Theologiae 211. I think I had, let me stop sharing my screen for a second. It was 211. Let me double check on that though. Yes, 211, one through 212, six. This is a very important text in understanding this. There you go. And I'll put myself down at the bottom corner. And then I'll make it bigger so you guys can see it. Okay. So chapter 211, that in Christ, there is only one suppositum and only one person. So accordingly, we must say that in Christ, there is not only one person of God and man, but also that there is but one suppositum in one hypostasis. So notice that in in Latin theology, there's a distinction made between hypostasis and person, where um, otherwise uh, the two are taken um, in the two are taken as uh, as the same as each other. But um, when it comes to a hypostasis, a hypostasis is just a individualization of a nature where uh, a person adds in rationality to that nature, which is individualized. So to see that this is so, we have to consider that the name person, hypostasis, and suppositum signify a certain whole. We cannot say that a hand or flesh or any other parts is a person or a hypostasis or a suppositum, but this whole, which is this man, is such. But names that are common to individuals in the line of substance and accidents, such as individual and singular, can be applied both to the whole and to the parts. Parts have something in common with accidents in the sense that they do not exist by themselves, but inhere in other things, although in a different way. We can say, therefore, that the hand of Socrates or Plato is a certain individual or singular thing, even though it is not a hypostasis or suppositum or a person. So he's denying first that we can't understand a hypostasis as a part of a thing. It must be a whole thing in itself. So furthermore, we should note that the combination of various ingredients, so mixing together of certain things, considered just in itself sometimes constitutes an integral whole, which, which same combination does not constitute an integral whole in another being because of the addition of some other component. So now he's going to go in the example. Thus, in a stone, the combination of the four elements constitutes an integral whole. And so the object composed of the elements can in the stone be called a suppositum or a hypostasis, which is this stone. So think about it like you're making brownies. The various elements of a certain brownie mixed together will make a whole brownie, which can be referred to as a suppositum or a hypostasis. It cannot, of course, be called a person because it's not a hypostasis endowed with rational nature. Notice distinction between hypostasis and person is that a person is of a rational nature, but a hypostasis is of a non-rational nature, but there's both individualizations of a nature. 
It's just a question of what nature. So with the combination of elements in an animal constitutes not an integral whole, but only a part, namely the body. Notice here, the body itself cannot be regarded as a person. The body would be a substance. This is very important because the body is only the material aspects of a certain thing. So body is only a part. Sometimes else, something else must be added to make up a complete animal, and this is the soul. So notice, the complete human nature is the body with the soul. And notice I did not say the complete human person, but the complete human nature is the body and the soul. And if this is individualized, it is a person. So hence, the combination of elements in an animal does not constitute a suppositum or hypostasis. Rather, this whole animal is the hypostasis or suppositum. Nevertheless, the combination of the elements is not, on this account, any less effectual in an animal than in a stone, but is rather more so because it is ordained to the formation of a nobler being. So right now, he's just going over the distinction between hypostasis and person. So in all other men, therefore, the union of soul and body constitutes a hypostasis and suppositum, because in their case, the hypostasis or suppositum is nothing else than these two components. Notice, in all other men. So you have this combination of a soul and body individualized. And in all men, this would constitute one hypostasis and then one nature, and then two substances. So the nature is that set of both material and immaterial attributes. And then the substances is the physical on one end, and then the, which would be the body, and then the immaterial on the other hand, which is the soul, which is matter and form. But, notice this but, this is very important in Christology, in our Lord Jesus Christ, Besides soul and body, a third substance enters in, namely divinity. In him, therefore, the composite of body and soul is not a separate suppositum or hypostasis, nor is it a person. Notice, it is not a, in Christ, body and soul, unlike everybody else. The combination of form and matter, that is soul and body, is not a hypostasis or a person. The suppositum, hypostasis or person, is that which is made up of three substances, namely the body, the soul, and the divinity. And thus in Christ, just as there is one person, so is there one suppositum and a hypostasis. So you may say, how is this so? And everybody else, a form and matter, soul and body, constitute a person. Why not in Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the... Unlike others, the individualization is not in himself, but the individualization is in another. So the soul and body is individualized by the hypostasis of the second person in the Trinity. Very important when it comes especially to Jake's arguments. So, but the way his soul is joined to his body differs from the way his divinity is united to both. His soul is joined to the body as being its form, so that one nature, which is called human nature, is composed of the two. So notice, while there's three substances, there's only two natures. And the one nature is, a, is the matter, which is the body, and the form, which is the soul. 
and these two substances constitute one nature, human nature. But divinity does not come to the soul and the body as a form or as a part. This is against the very concept of divine perfection. So divinity cannot be the former part of another. Therefore, the divinity and the soul and the body do not constitute one nature, but the divine nature, complete in itself and existing in its purity, united to itself the human nature, composed of soul and body in a way that is incomprehensible and indescribable. This is called for an exercise of God's infinite power. For we see that the stronger an agent is, the more closely he connects to himself an instrument to carry out an undertaking. Therefore, as the divine power is infinite and incomprehensible because of the infinity, so to the way God united Christ's human nature to himself as a sort of organ for accomplishing man's salvation is beyond human expression and surpasses every other union of God with creation. So notice the hypostasis, which is really the... Uh, the underlying principle, another way of describing it is the underlying principle of, um, of the, the action of a certain um, nature that is, that uses um, the humanity of Christ as a sort, sort of organ, as a sort of organ. So there aren't two streams really. You can, you don't think of it like, okay, there's this human principle of action stream, which is on one hand, and then a divine principle of action stream on the other hand. But there is that one hypostasis, which works through both. So the hypostasis, the second person of the Trinity works through the divine nature and also works through the human nature. And an analogous way of thinking about this can also be the, um, the human hypostasis that we have because we do not always work through our body. We work through our soul or really our soul works through our body. So um, that is a way in which we can analogously think of it, though this is a very imperfect analogy. So we pointed out above that person hypostasis and suppositum signify an integral whole. Hence, if the divine nature in Christ had the function of a part, like the soul and the composition of a man, and we're not something whole, then the one person of Christ would not be accounted for by the divine nature alone, but would be a certain composite of three elements, just as in man, the person hypostasis and suppositum is what is constituted of soul and body. Hence, however, since the divine nature is an integral whole that took human nature to itself by an ineffable union, the person is accounted for by the divine nature. So also is the hypostasis and suppositum. Notice divine person. Yet the soul and body are drawn to the personhood of the divine person, such that the person of the Son of God is also the person in hypostasis and suppositum of the Son of Man. So the personhood of the humanity of Christ is the same as the personhood of the divine nature the second person of the Trinity. And I'm drilling this in your head and repeating it very often because this is going to be very important when we start to get to, to Jake's video. So now he's going to give us a bit of a, um, a bit of an analogy, which is very helpful. But notice this is an analogy. So some sort of example of this can be found in creatures. Thus, subject and accident are not united in such a way that some third thing is formed from them. In a union of this kind, the subject does not have the function of a part, 
but is an integral whole, which is a person hypostasis and suppositum. Notice, what is the subject, for example, of Christ dying? Who dies? God dies. The subject of all of the actions of Christ, even if it is according to the humanity, is the second person of the Trinity. But the accident is drawn to the personhood of the subject, so that the person of the man in the color of whiteness is one and the same, and the hypostasis or suppositum is likewise the same. So again, um, when we speak of a certain man or a certain thing in general, it both has substance and accidents. And while they are, there's a, dis, a clear distinction between the two, um, the subject of both of them is the same. So in a somewhat similar fashion, the person hypostasis and suppositum of the Son of God is the person hypostasis and suppositum of the human nature in Christ. Influenced by comparisons of this sort, some theologians went so far as to say that the human nature in Christ deteriorates into an accident and is accidentally united to the Son of God. They were unable to discriminate between literal truth and likeness. So again, do not go too far in this analogy. It is just that, an analogy. Okay, therefore, the foregoing exposition makes it clear that there is no other person in Christ but the eternal person who is the person of the Son of God nor is there any other hypostasis or suppositum. Hence, when we say this man pointing to Christ, we mean the eternal suppositum. Nevertheless, the name man is not for the re that reason predicated equivocally of Christ and of other men. So notice, we speak of Christ being a man, and I, when I speak of myself being a man, we're speaking in, in, of, in, of it in two different senses. But this is an equivocal. Because when we're speaking of Christ being a man, we're speaking of him in accordance with his human nature. When we speak of me being a man, we're speaking of, of me in accordance with both my hypostasis and my nature. So equivocation does not follow diversity of supposition, but follows diversity of signification. So not diversity of... So the name of man as attributed to Peter and to Christ signifies the same thing, namely human nature, but it does not have the same supposition for in the one case, it takes the eternal suppositum of the son of God as what underlies on the other case, it takes a created suppositum, a human suppositum as what underlies. So stick with me, guys. We are almost into chapter 212 where things start to get spicy. So since, however, we can predicate of a suppositum of some nature, all that is proper to that nature of which it is the suppositum. And since in Christ, the suppositum of the human nature is the same as the suppositum of the divine nature, it is evident that everything belonging to the divine nature and everything belonging to the human nature can be predicated indifferently of this suppositum, which is the suppositum of the, both natures. So we both can speak of Christ dying and Christ having life everlasting per se. We can speak of both. We can speak of both God, both Christ being infinite in accordance with his humanity, I mean, according to his divinity and Christ being finite in accordance with his humanity. There's a dual predication. So this is true both when the nature and the name we use signifies the divine nature or person and when it signifies the human nature. 
We can say, for example, that the Son of God is eternal and that the Son of God was born of the Virgin. Likewise, we can say this man is God, that he created the stars, and that he was born, died, and buried. What is predicated of his suppositum is predicated of it according to some form or matter. Thus, Socrates is white according to the whiteness of his skin and is rational according to his soul. But as we pointed out in the beginning of this chapter, in Christ there are two natures and one suppositum. Therefore, if reference is made to the suppositum, human and divine things are to be predicated indifferently of Christ. Yet we must discern in what respect each thing is predicated. That is, divine attributes are predicated of Christ according to his divine nature, and human attributes are predicated of him according to his human nature. Okay. Now let's keep pushing forward. We're only going to get six chapters into this because this is also very, very important. We need a sip. Okay. So chapter 212, one of the things that are spoken of as one or many in Christ. So since there are in Christ one person and two natures, we have to examine the relationship between them to determine what is to be spoken of as one and what is to be spoken of as multiple in Christ. So whatever is multiplied in accordance with the diversity of Christ's natures must be acknowledged to be plural in him. In this connection, we must consider, first of all, that nature is received by generation or birth. Consequently, as there are two natures in Christ, there must also be two generations or births, one that is eternal, whereby he received divine nature from his father, and one that occurred in time, whereby he received human nature from his mother. Likewise, whatever is attributed both to God and man as pertaining to nature must be predicated of Christ in the plural. To God are ascribed intellect and will and their perfections, such as knowledge or wisdom and charity and justice. These are also attributed to man as pertaining to human nature, for will and intellect are faculties of the soul and their perfections are wisdom, justice, and the like. So we can speak of will, two wills, two intellects, two wisdoms, two justices, and et cetera, et cetera, in Christ, because they pertain in different modes, both to the humanity and to the divinity. Therefore, we must acknowledge two intellects in Christ, one human and one divine, and likewise two wills, as well as a double knowledge. Notice this is going to be very important, a double knowledge and charity, namely the created and the uncreated. Okay, getting into chapter, what is this, chapter four. But whatever belongs to the suppositum or hypostasis must be declared to be one in Christ. Hence, if existence is taken in the sense that one suppositum has one existence, it seems that we must say that there is one existence in Christ. Of course, as it is evident, when a whole is divided, each separate part has its own proper existence. But according as the parts are considered in a whole, they do not have their own existence, but they all exist with the existence of the whole. And the whole is the is the hypostasis. Therefore, if we look upon Christ as an integral suppositum, having two natures, his existence will be but one, just as there is but one suppositum. Since actions belong to supposita, some have thought that as there is but one suppositum in Christ, so is there only one activity in him. But they have not rightly weighed the matter. For many activities are discerned in any individual if there are many principles of activity in him. Thus, in man, the activity of understanding differs from the activity of sense perception because of the difference between sense and intellect. Likewise, in fire, the activity of heating differs from the activity of soaring upwards because of the difference between heat and lightness. Now, nature is related to activity as its principle. 
Therefore, it is not true that Christ has only one activity because of the one suppositum. Rather, there are two activities in him because of the two natures, just as conversely in the, there is in the Trinity, but one activity of the three persons because of one nature. Okay, getting into the last paragraph of this. Thank you guys for holding on. Nevertheless, the activity of Christ's humanity participates in a certain way in the power of his divine activity. For of all the factors that come together in a suppositum, that which is the most eminent is served by the rest in an instrumental capacity, just as all the lesser faculties of man are instruments of his intellect. Thus in Christ, the human nature is held to be, as it were, the organ of his divine nature. But it is clear that an instrument acts in virtue of the principal agent, the instrument being the humanity and the principal agent being the hypostasis. This is why in the action of an instrument, we are to able to discern not only the power of the instrument, but also the power of the principal agent. Notice two different powers. A chest is made by the action of an axe, but only insofar as the axe is directed by the carpenter. In like manner, the activity of the human nature in Christ received a certain efficacy from the divine nature over and above its human power. When Christ touched a leper, the action belonged to his human nature, but the fact that the touch cured the man of his leprosy flowed from the power of the divine nature. So this is how it can be described as theandric. In this way, all of the human actions and sufferings of Christ were efficacious for our salvation in virtue of his divinity. This is why Dionysius calls the human activity of Christ theandric that is, divine human, because actions of this sort proceed from his human nature in such a way that the power of his divinity was operative in them. Okay, great. So we have just went through that. Let me stop sharing my screen for a second, because there are two or three other shorter texts that I want to share with you guys, but I promise it won't be that long. But that kind of gives you in a summary fashion the, um, the language that we use. Okay, let's get into next the Summa Contra Gentiles. Has a good section, a really good section on this. And notice all primary sources. So no blame for me from me. Okay, Summa Contra Gentiles, book four, chapter 39. Let's get that down for you. The teaching of the Catholic Church on the incarnation of Christ. Let's share my screen. There you go. Okay. So from the foregoing chapters, it is plain. Sorry. From the foregoing chapters, it is plain that according to the tradition of Catholic faith, we must confess that in Christ there is one perfect divine nature and a perfect human nature composed of a rational soul and human flesh. Also that these two natures are united in Christ, not by mere indwelling, nor accidentally as a man to his clothes, nor by mere personal habitude and property, but in one hypostasis and in one suppositum. In this way alone can we safeguard the teaching of the scriptures about the incarnation. We have already observed that sacred scripture, without making any distinction, ascribes divine things to the man and things pertaining to the man to God. Therefore, in both cases, it is the same one who whom reference is made. Again, the single subjectivity that you guys need to remember. And see, this is only three paragraphs, so don't worry. 
But seeing that the opposite statements cannot be true about the same subject in the same respect. So notice, this is right here, hugely important when it comes to Muslim apologetics. Opposite statements cannot be true about the same subject in the same respect. Notice they're going to say it's a contradiction that we say that God both um, is infinite and finite, but we do not speak of them in the same respect. We speak in one respect according to his humanity and in another respect according to his divinity, two modes. And that the divine and human things are said about Christ are opposed to one another. For instance, that he suffered and was impassable, that he died and was immortal, and so on. It follows that divine and human things must be said of Christ in different respects. That is the respect of nature. Accordingly, as regard the subject of which these things are predicated, we must make no distinction. So there's no distinction made to the subject. Yes, God both dies and is immortal. Yes, God both has a mother and created Our Lady. Yes, yes, yes. Because they're the same subject, but in different respects. And hold to unity, but as regards the thing in respect of which these predications are made, a distinction is to be observed. Natural properties are attributed to a thing in respect of its nature. Thus a stone falls down in respect of its nature as a heavy body. Accordingly, since divine and human things are attributed to Christ in different respects, different respects, it follows that in Christ there are two different distinct unmixed natures. Distinct unmixed natures. Those are the different respects. Now, natural properties are attributed to something that belongs by its own nature to the genus of substance. And this is a hypostasis or suppositum of that nature. And since human and divine things predicated of Christ are attributed to the one undivided subject, it follows that Christ is one hypostasis and one suppositum subsisting in the human and divine natures. So notice this one hypostasis subsists in two natures. So in this way, divine things are truly and properly attributed to that man inasmuch as that man indicates a suppositum of both natures, human and divine. Vice versa, human things are attributed to the word inasmuch as he is a suppositum of human nature. Hence also it is clear that although the Son took flesh, it does not follow that either Father or Holy Spirit became incarnate, since the incarnation was affected by union and not in the nature common to the three persons. So notice, if we're going to go the way of the Eutychians and say that it took place in nature, then we'd have to say that the Father and Holy Spirit were incarnate too. But that's just a side note. But in the hypostasis, or person, in which the three persons are distinct, and thus, even as in the Trinity there are several persons subsisting in one nature, so in the mystery of the incarnation there is one person subsisting in two natures. Okay, I believe I just have two more texts for you guys, and they're short just like this one. So it'll be probably about another 10 minutes of going over texts. Okay, the next one is going to be found in, let me see. It's going to be found in... Um, commentary on the sentences and this is just a this is just a paragraph this is where he provides really good definitions of um of substance I mean of nature and hypostasis okay there you go shared my screen let me zoom in a bit there you go 
Okay. So he first gives a, um, in this question where he's asking about whether union happened in the nature, he gives a little bit of a historical overview of what it means to be a nature and hypostasis. But, um, this, this is where he gets into how he's defining it. So, however, aside from the significations by which form and matter are called substance, substance is said in two ways, according to the philosopher. In one way, the subject itself is called a this something and is not predicated of another, like this man, insofar as a substance is signified by the word hypostasis. And according to this signification, a substance is called a nature insofar as a nature is that which can act and be acted upon as Boethius says in the book mentioned above. So this is a very dense sent two sentences right here, but it's packed with so much in understanding how Catholic theology is using these terms. So in one way, the subject itself is called a this something and is not predicated of another. So this actually would be using substance in a way of a subsisting thing in the way of a predicable object, in the way of a subject of predication, such as this man is white. This man is white. That predication of a single subject is what we can speak of as a hypostasis. So notice this plays into our Christology really well because there's a single subject of both divine and human uh, predication. And that simple, single, single subject is referred to as a hypostasis. So, and according to this signification, so according to that signification of hypostasis, a substance is called a nature insofar as a nature is that which can be act or be acted upon. In another way, we call the substance the what it was to be or the whatness and essence that the definition of anything whatsoever signifies. And this is also how substance is called the nature, as when Boethius says that the nature is what informs each thing with its specific difference. So notice that idea of a set of attributes. Because the last definition is the one that completes the definition. Okay, let me see if there's anything good down here. No, he's just going into. So that's a very important paragraph when it comes to understanding the distinction. Okay, just have two more texts to show you guys before we get into the refutation itself. I hope you guys understand why I'm doing this. It's not superfluous. I'm doing this because it's important. It's very important. Okay, let me see. Okay. Okay. This is from, it's not from Thomas. This is from um, Father Reginald Gary Lagrange's um, discussion on it. This is my own scan, so uh, from my own personal copy. So sorry for the the marking up that I have. 
So he's discussing what it means to be a person. And this is very important, especially with um, moderns misunderstanding what we mean by person. And then also uh, what Jake takes in. So ontological personality is not only something positive, but also something substantial, not accidental, because person means a substance, a real subject of accident. Is that right now? There, this concept of a person being a subject is very important. Hence, personality, speaking properly, ontological personality, is not formally constituted by self consciousness. Not formally constituted by self consciousness. Very important because that's how Jake is going to define personality, which is rather an act of the person already constituted. So, the personhood precedes self-consciousness. Very important. An act which manifests the person which it presupposes. Similarly, personality is not constituted by freedom of will, which is a consequence that shows the dignity of the person who is already constituted. Moreover, in Jesus, we find two self-conscious intellects and two free wills, though he is one sole person, one sole ego. Hence, personality is something positive and substantial. Let us now compare it with those elements in line of substance which it most resembles. So notice, although Christ is one person, he has two self-consciousnesses because personhood is really the principle of self-consciousness. Consciousness. It's a very hard word to say. So is personality identified with nature as found concrete in the individual? No. Because person is a whole, which has nature indeed as a part, the essential formal imperfective part, but still only a part. So nature is not identifiable with person, which Jake also falls into this error, as we'll see later. So were nature not a mere part, but the whole of person, we could say Peter is his nature. But since person contains more than nature, we say Peter has a human has human nature. So notice person is that individualization of the nature, not identifiable with the nature itself. So is then personality identified with individualized nature, which underlies existence? Again, no, because the concrete singular nature of Peter is that not that which exists, but is that by which Peter is a man. That which exists is Peter himself, his person. Hence, personality is not the concrete singular nature as preceding existence. So notice, this is distinct from what I from what I just said, but um, if we can speak of this on three levels: the individualization, the or the principle of individualization of the nature, which is properly hypostasis, then the individual nature, and then nature generally speaking. So Jake wants to make the individual nature, so this body and this soul, to be the person, but that is not so. So, and then he also says that further were this view granted, since as in Christ, there are two natures, so there would likewise be two personalities, two persons. So what Jake is saying isn't anything new. This is Father Reginald Gergou Lagrange, who was speaking about a century ago. And um, he, he already, there's this realization that we cannot define personality in the way in which Jake is defining it. So let's go below. So in other words, the fundamental argument of the Thomistic thesis runs thus. That which is not its own existence is really distinct from that existence, really that is anteriorly to any mental act of ours. 
Now, the person of Peter, and much more his personality, is really distinct from his existence. And existence is in him as a contingent predicate. So contingent is not necessary. It means that it can or cannot be. God alone is his own existence. A truth of supremest evidence is those who have received the beatific vision. So to recapitulate, ontological personality is a positive something, a substantial something, which so determines the concrete singular nature of a rational substance that it is capable without medium of existing in itself as a separate and independent entity. More briefly, it is that by which a rational subject is that is that which exists, quod est, whereas its nature is that by which it belongs to its species, and existence is that by which it exists. So again, person to be a person is that by which a rational subject is that which exists. So it's really a principle of something else. And then below. Hence, we may say that personality is the point where two distinct lines intersect, the line of essence and the line of existence. Personality, speaking properly, is that by which an intellectual subject is what it is. This ontological personality, which constitutes the ego, ego is thus the root both of the psychologic personality. So to be a person is the root of the psychologic personality. It's not identified with it. The only similarity, they, there is a certain derivative similarity, but they're not univocal. So that is of the ego as self-conscious and of the moral personality, that is of self-mastery of self-initiated activity. Thus Christ's person, as theologians in general say, is the personal principle of his theandric actions. And thus he gives, gives to his acts their infinite value. So notice a very important sentence right here. Christ's person, so his divine hypostasis, is the personal principle of his theandric actions. So it's a principle which is underlying those natures, not necessarily the natures themselves. Let's go below. So, but the saint, however high of the... the So in Jesus Christ, the word of God gave himself in the highest conceivable manner to humanity by uniting himself personally to humanity in such wise that the human nature thus united becomes one sole ego with the word, which assumed forever that human nature. Thus, there is in Christ one sole person, one sole intellectual and free subject. Notice not one sole intellect, not one sole will, but one sole intellectual subject. So one sole subject even while there are two natures, two intellects, two freedoms. Hence Christ alone among men can say before Abraham was, I am the Father and I are one, all that belongs to, to the Father belongs to me. To clarify this hypostatic union, St. Thomas proceeds as follows. According to Catholic faith, human nature is really and truly united to the person of the word, while the two natures remain distinct. Now that which is united to a person without a union in nature is formally united to it in person, because person is the composite whole, of which nature is the essential part. Notice persons that composite whole as we went over earlier, and nature is just a part of that whole. So further, since human nature is not an accident like whiteness, for example, and is not a transitory act of knowledge or love, the human nature is united to the word, not accidentally, but substantially. So again, whereas individualized, 
individuation proceeds from matter personality on the contrary is the most perfect thing in nature thus in jesus as in us all individualizing circumstances of time of place of birth of people and country arise from created matter whereas this person is uncreated so again what does it mean for me to be an individualized nature what does it mean for me to be an individualization of a rational nature of person what is that individualizing principles around me well it might be that i live in north carolina that's an individualizing principle it might be that I live in the 21st century. That's another individualizing principle. It might be that I'm a Catholic. That's another individualizing principle. We might look at my parents. Those are other individualizing principles. But what is those individualizing principles fundamentally of Christ? That individualizing principle, his hypostasis, is that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity. His human nature does not have those individualizing principles of its own, but it's but it goes even further back than that. In the first principle of this hypostasis, it is the fact that he is eternal. And is that eternal second person of the Trinity. Okay, the last paragraph, I promise. Then we'll actually get into the refutation of the video. So glad you guys are hanging on here. So Christ's personality then, the unity of his ego, is primarily an ontological unity. He is one sole subject, intellectual and free, and as one sole substantial existence. But this most profound of all ontological unities expresses itself by a perfect union of this human mind and will with his divinity. His human mind, as we have just said, had even here on earth the beatific vision of God's essence and hence of God's knowledge. Hence, even here below, there was in Jesus a wonderful comprehension of vision uncreated and vision created, both having the same object, though only the uncreated vision is infinitely comprehensive. Similarly, there was perfect and indissolvable union of divine freedom and human freedom, the latter also being absolutely impeccable. So another, another aspect of this is to think of first act and second act, as the theologians will talk of, or, a, or um, the abstract and the concrete. So because there is a certain theosis or divinization of the humanity of Christ, while he does not take upon divine attributes, properly speaking, he takes upon certain superhuman attributes in regard to his capacity. So this is seen, uh, for example, him healing um, the blind man, him healing the blind man, although is an act of his human nature is a certain power which is above human nature because he is elevated in a certain sense we can speak about that to go beyond the um the capacities of a normal human although it does not exceed the capacities of conceivably humanity as such i hope that all made sense if that didn't make sense then uh, oh look like almost everybody just came back right now there's like five people that came so you're all back just for the right moment because we're going to start to get into the video. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen and I'm going to go into the chat real quick if you guys have any uh, questions and want me to clarify with anything. And yes, this is a LaCroix. I hate LaCroix, but this is the only thing we had besides water. Okay. <clears throat> So, quick question. Is the post-incarnation Christ only a divine person or a divine human person? Great question. So, um, 
the post-incarnation Christ is only a divine person. We do not speak of him being a human person at, in any sense. Although um, in a certain um, improper sense, we can speak of a divine human person in regard to the natures in which he possesses. So James also asks, um, and this was actually before I started bringing up the Lagrange text. So is subject being used here grammatically like the subject of a sentence, which has a single referent, or does it involve concepts about the ego? So yes, it does also involve concepts about the ego. Um, see the Lagrange text that I just went over. Okay. <laughs> Leonard says, this man is white, militant Thomist canceled. <laughs> That's always the example that uh, that St. Thomas, then also Aristotle uses, is talk about this man being white. I'm always like, Socrates is white. And I'm like, ooh, he must be a racist. Let's cancel Socrates. Um, let's get to the video itself. Okay. Then I'll get my wife to put chapters in here. So everybody listening to the playback, you're welcome. Um, if you want to skip over that lengthy deep christology lore okay so the video is called the chalcedonian creed is an historian and i'm going to skip these ads real quick before i put it up okay so i'm going to share my screen and you guys need to make sure that they did cancel socrates yes they did make sure you let me know if you hear the uh the audio on this one. Okay, there you go. Okay, make sure I unmute site. Okay, let's get into it. And the first party doesn't really talk about much that is um, relevant, so I'm going to put it on one and a half speed. Salam alaikum. I'm back with another video. Welcome to my channel, The Criterion. Please subscribe. Oh yeah, I need to look for confirmation that actually his audio is going through. Like, comment, share, whatever you feel um, that you would like to do in response to this video and my channel as a whole. Today, I'm gonna to be continuing the series, The Incoherence of the Incarnation, which is the Christian doctrine where Jesus the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became a man, okay? So if you haven't watched the previous two videos related to the subject, I suggest that you do so in preparation for this video. Now, in this video, I will be dealing with the group known as the, what I am deeming the Chalcedonians, or Orthodox Christianity. Now, in previous videos, I gave a summary of the different views and the story, history behind it in part one. The second video, I did a critique of William Lane Craig and the heresy known as Apollinarianism. So notice again, William Lane Craig is, um, is a heretic, and I wouldn't regard him as a uh, Christian philosopher, especially on this subject. So notice that very clearly and he does note this in his second video and in this video i'm going to be dealing with the chalcedonians which is the large number of christian orthodox and um critique so chalcedonianism is catholicism it is christianity so um there aren't really uh separate christian views on this there there is the one christian view in their view and how it relates to nestorianism which i brought up in the first video now First, I quoted the Creed of Chalcedon, in which I'm not going to quote again, you can refer back to my other videos or simply look it up online, in which it is a creed explaining that Jesus Christ is one person with two complete natures, one human nature and one divine nature, but yet remaining one person, the natures are not mixed or confused, and there's only one son. 
Now, this explicitly denies Nestorianism, which is that Christ was two persons, and Apollinarianism, which is that Christ was one person, but essentially wasn't fully man because he didn't have a human soul. Okay? Now, I'm going to discuss what the problem for Orthodox Christianity is in regards to the incarn Incarnation, and I'm going to deem them the Chalcedonians. I don't mean this as a derogatory claim. I just mean it in the sense that they are Orthodox and hold to the creed of Chalcedon. Now, when discussing this with my Christian friends, usually, um, not usually, but sometimes they say, well, it's just a mystery, okay? The problem with claiming that it's just a mystery is that my videos and my arguments are to illustrate that it is a contradiction. So there's a difference between a contradiction and a mystery. A mystery could be a truth about something that we don't completely understand, either because we don't have enough information to understand it or because we are incapable of understanding it. It's above our understanding. And Muslims can sympathize with this in regards to um, God and understanding all of his ways. Of course, we are not on that level and have the ability to do so. So sometimes we can say, well, it's a mystery. God's ways are not our ways. That's fine. However, a contradiction is showing that something is a square circle or a married bachelor or that Jake was in the same place at the same time, but yet he wasn't. He was also in a different place at the same uh, at the same time. Okay, these are all contradictions and not mysteries. So my arguments are to illustrate that the Chalcedonian Orthodox Christian view on the incarnation is a flat out contradiction. And notice, I really do uh, like the fact that he begins with uh, defining what a contradiction is. It's very important. They are something that is and not is in the same manner. But I think that throughout the rest of the video, as we'll see, he confuses uh, the matter of what a contradiction is. Because as St. Thomas said, um, on, the, on the bare surface of things, it can seem like a contradiction, but it is not because we're speaking of the humanity and divinity in different, in different manners, different modes. Another thing that they might do is just say, well, we're not giving any explanation. Well, that's fine. You're you uh, wouldn't want them to do that. And that's exactly what the Chalcedonians did. They gave... Um... That is exactly not what the Chalcedonians did. That part actually made me quite upset. Um, I don't have it with me, but Leonitius, Leonitius of Byzantium right there. They, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, um, uh, Pope St. Leo the Great, um, the later scholastics, uh, the Chalcedonians have time and 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 time again did not only say what is, but also explained how it is and explain how it's not a contradiction, have defined terms very clearly and in intense scholastic precision. And uh, Jake, if you're watching or if anybody's wondering, I can send you the exact references and uh, sections in the Summa where this is discussed and in Thomas's other treatises where this is discussed. A detailed... Um pathway of what you could or couldn't say about Jesus Christ, but they didn't explain why what they said makes sense or how it's even possible. It did. They did. So no explanation was given. So Christians it are still was. in the same place. Um, no explanation given of how it's a coherent view. And um, the book that I have here called The Metaphysics of the Incarnation. Notice that book is, um, to call it, to call it Chalcedonian is very offensive because it basically, as I said before, it's generally a, a collection of Christian philosophers, so-called, that think that the Catholic faith is their plaything. Um, by um, Jonathan Hill, and there's a bunch of different essays from Christian theologians and philosophers trying to give a model of the incarnation to deal with some of the problems that I'm going to bring up in um, this video. Unfortunately, I feel they're all successful for a variety of different reasons, which I'm not able to go into right now uh, because of lack of time. And again, just to be clear, I deny that there are, I unequivocally deny that there are different ways of speaking about the incarnation, different models for the incarnation. There is one model laid down by Chalcedon. Everything else is unequivocally non-Christian and utterly heretical. 
So we have to be very clear in this discussion. I have defined my defined my terms, defined what I'm talking about, and the Christian tradition has defined what they're talking about very clearly. There are no other models. There are no other ways of speaking about it. There is none other of that. There is only the one way which the fathers have passed down to us and the scholastics have formalized. formalized. There are no other ways. You're not talking to an evangelical here. But I'm going to focus on the problems with them and let you um, try to solve them if you can. Brothers and sisters, this is urgent. I am standing in front of the masjid for the largest Islamic... Um, the main problem that I'm going to, two problems that I'm going to be discussing are is what called the two-person and no-person problem, okay? But I'm just going to read from this book called The Metaphysics of the Incarnation, in which the introduction is done by Jonathan Hill, and he says about the Incarnation, those who address these issues operate under certain constraints, which the vast majority of Christian theologians have agreed are important, although they have not agreed about how to express them or about which models respect them. First, Christ must be fully and genuinely divine. Second, he must be fully and genuinely human. Third, he must be genuinely a single person. If Christ had not met these conditions, he could not have been a true savior. They are, explicit, they are expressed in the Christological definition laid down by the Council of Chalcedon, AD 451, in the doctrine that Christ was a single person with two natures. We may then take these constraints as basic to discussions of the metaphysics of the Incarnation. However, they pull in different directions. Historically, those who have sought to stress the true divinity and also the true humanity of Christ have found it hard to reconcile this with the affirmation that he was, a, was really a single person. And that's what I'm claiming the Chalcedonians fall into. Um, Taken too far, this tendency may result in Nestorianism, the claim that Christ was two people, one human and one divine. Conversely, those who have stressed the unity of Christ's person have faced difficulties in explaining how he could be both fully human and fully divine. Taken too far, this may result in Eutychianism, the claim that Christ's divinity swamps his humanity, or that the um, divine nature and the human nature um, mingled in some sense. Okay? And then he says there's two problems with this. Most philosophical treatments of the incarnation approach it as a problem or set of problems that needs to be resolved if the doctrine is to be rationally defensible. They, there are a number of such problems associated with the incarnation, but the one that is usually taken to be the most pressing is what we call the incoherence objection. And that, folks, is what I am going to be um, dealing with today, which is the incoherence objection, hence the title of my uh, series, the, Incar the Incoherence of the Incarnation. Okay. Now, I have my board here, my whiteboard, which I'm just going to go over a few basic um, terms here. And I have the true person... Uh, slash no person problem just some basic definitions according to christians the son was a person prior to the incarnation correct that's um not even a controversial claim christians agree the son was a person prior to the incarnation hence three persons in the trinity and the son was eternal according to them the son takes onto himself a complete human nature now that could include a soul spirit and body whether some christian soul and body think that the soul and spirit are synonymous for each other others feel that they aren't whatever it doesn't matter uh, soul spirit and body whether they're the same or not he had all three of them or two of them Soul, spirit, and body composite is sufficient for person. Oh, oh. I'm going to try to get his arm out of there so we can see. The soul and body composite is sufficient for personhood. This is correct in a certain sense that it is sufficient for personhood, but only individualized with that principle of the hypostasis as Lagrange went over and as Thomas went over. Very important because they bring up this very case of Christ as an illustration of how it can be non-sufficient for personhood. Whether they're the same or not, he had all three of them or two of them. Soul, spirit, and body composite is sufficient for personhood. Now, that's my claim. I'm going to go into that more. Now, if that's correct, and the son was a person prior to the incarnation, and after the incarnation, he took on a human soul, spirit, and body, which is a, a person. It's not a person. Soul and body is a nature. And then with that principle of the hypostasis can be a person. Now, normally it's just, this is just a logical distinction, but it becomes real 
um, <clears throat> I mean, this the distinction between a the formation of the um, of the nature and then uh, personhood is just a logical rather than temporal distinction, but they are really separate when it comes to uh, the case of um, Christ. And I said that really badly, so uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I I. I, I used bad distinctions right there. So uh then that would equal what? One plus one would have to equal two persons. Yet they say this plus this only equals one person. And that's what the Chalcedonians say, and that's what I'm saying. The contradiction lies. So I think we need to go back to Lagrange again. Go back to Lagrange, get his here it is. Reality. Synthesis of Thomistic thought and go to his section on what it means to be a person and where he discusses the relationship between um, what is the nature and um, what is the actual existence because personhood can be thought of as Lagrange talks about as that intersection of existence and essence so um, <clears throat> that is a helpful way of thinking about it but again while something is sufficient it doesn't mean that it's actual now let's put that in a deductive syllogism premise one all self-conscious agents are persons that's my Yes, notice, notice, it. I didn't mean yes is to affirm that, but notice this claim right here. Look how he's defining person, a self-conscious agent. Where are you getting that from? Have you seen any authenticated Catholic dogmaticians or theologians, Chalcedonians ever define person in that way, a self-conscious agent? No. Because why? That would lead to a heretical view of the incarnation, that is Nestorianism, and a heretical view of the Trinity, that is tritheism. A person is not a self-conscious agent. A person is that individualization of a rational nature. That's different from a self-conscious agent. That is not the definition of a person. I unequivocally deny that definition of a person. And even in classical, if you want to talk about... Muslim uh, anthropology. That is not the definition of a person. Nobody until the modern era would ever define a person in that way. That's why I even had a uh, systematic theology teacher in undergrad who refused to use the word person with us. He would always use the word hypostasis with us. And in using the word hypostasis, he gave us a very particular definition of what a hypostasis is. Because, um, because when we use the word person, Oftentimes, person can be sullied by those uh, Freudian ways of thinking about the, a self-conscious agent. But this is not anything classical at all. This is not how anyone classically would define a person. This is a modern way of thinking about what it means for something for someone to be a person. Now, let's put that in a deductive syllogism. Premise one, all self-conscious agents are persons. That's my claim, okay? P2, premise two, Christ had two self-consciousnesses. Now, this is a Christian claim. And two wills. He was had two self centers of self-consciousness and two wills. Yes, two centers of self-consciousness. That is correct, as Lagrange says. But a self-consciousness is not a person. And he had two wills, correct, as everybody agrees. Okay. What do we conclude by the rules of logic from these two premises? Conclusion, therefore, Christ was slash is, because he still has the soul, spirit, and body, according to Christians of of the human nature. Therefore, Christ was slash is what? One person or two person? Well, one person because I deny premise one. And I think everybody, anybody with a classical understanding of anthropology, um, I know, Jake, that uh, 
that you are an Aristotelian, but this is a bit sad. Read Aristotle's treatise De Anima. Read, um, read his works in totality. Read the Muslim philosophers who are interpreting these works and see how they're defining what it means to be a person. And you'll get something radically different than a self-conscious agent. And uh, further, um, also, it's it's kind of crazy because you're reading like the Cappadocians, you're reading some of the church fathers, and they are very particular in how they're defining person in nature. There's entire discussions, back and forth letters you see where these people are, these church fathers are saying, okay, how are we defining hypostasis? How are we defining usia? And they kind of made up a definition for the definitions for these terms in order to apply them specifically to theology so that they would not uh, run into these issues. So if you're going to be defining a person for me or defining nature for me, go back to how they're defining it. Don't bring this modernist stuff to me when it comes to how the uh, psychologists would define a person. I'm not interested in that. That is pure equivocation and misdefinition. A definition of self-conscious agent is a person, and Christ had two self-consciousnesses, then we would have to conclude that Christ was two, sorry about that, two. Oh gosh, more ads. Persons, just get rid of the S. However, Christians agree with premise one and premise two, but yet they can- Christians do not agree with premise one at all. If you're going to read any Christian theologian before, I'd say, gosh, definitely before the Reformation. I mean, there's might have been a Cartesian influence um, that would have shifted this. But before the Cartesian era, at least, um, and then any Catholic dogmatician for certain to the modern day, they're not defining person in that way. Nobody is defining person in that way, except this substrate of evangelical theologians who think that the Catholic religion is their plaything. Include from this that Christ was only one person. So folks, that's the definition of a logical contradiction is when you agree and say the first two premises are true and yet you deny the conclusion. The conclusion would be that from these two premises that Christ was two persons and yet they agree with premise one and premise two but deny the conclusion and that's logically impossible. That's where the contradiction lies. Okay? <clears throat> now, He's about to go into Matthew 24, but I'm going to check the chat to see if there's anything. Okay, I don't see anything. So if you guys have any questions, remember you can drop them in still. I'll still answer them. But let's go a little bit slower. I'll go to one and a half speed. I know some people are going to listen to this on two times speed and then be, be absolutely wrecked. People could object and say, well, this is not the definition of what a person is. It really means... I'm the guy objecting that. ...assistance, or it really means uh, something else. Fine. I challenge you, because I've read the books, folks. In the first 45 minutes of the stream, we read the books. None of them said that. Not one. Zero. 
Give me a definition of what personhood is. Read Lagrange. What is human? Read Lagrange. What is that equal? And Christians can't give that answer because once they do, when you plug it in here and say that Christ had that, well, then that would mean he was a divine person and a human person. So if you're not satisfied with my definition, you give me a definition and I'll work with it. Now, this is a definition given by Christians in um, the text that I've read. Yeah, and that's um, Jake. I may have been a little bit inflammatory so far, and I'm sorry if that seems that way. But that is exactly the case given to you in that text. These are the definitions given to you in that text. I'm sure most of the people in that text would be anathematized by my church for what they're holding, especially William Lane Craig, especially. And even outside of my church, the Orthodox, I'm sure, would anathematize them. A lot of classical Protestant groups would anathematize them because they are heretics. It's really all we have to say about it. And it's a bit upsetting to me. I'm not upset at you. I'm upset in general. Because when you have people treating the Catholic faith as their plaything and then putting it forth to people, they have objections to it. I would object the same exact syllogism. I would object the same exact syllogism to them. I think this is a fine syllogism if you're running off of their definitions. That's why what they're saying is absolutely absurd. And that's why you have some like William Lane Craig who follow it out to its consistent conclusion and become Apollinarian because they do not understand what they're talking about. And in not understanding what they're talking about, they fall into heresy. And it's really sad. <clears throat> and I would like um, Muslims, on the other hand, to not interact with that material at all because, because it's really giving them a false sense of what most Christians believe. Because if you think of this, these evangelical philosophers, the amount that they represent of the entire Christian world is mere percentage points. Mere percentage points. Okay, so I'm not um, uh, just making this up on my own. Now, about this specific issue, Dr. William Lane Craig, who's a um, popular Christian philosopher and theologian, says this on his website when he was charged with the issue of monothelitism, which I brought up in the last video about Christ only having one uh, will and it being a heresy. So we questioned him about this. And I quote, he says, what the council, talking about the council of um, Constantinople, okay, presupposed and what seems dubious to many is that the faculty of will belongs properly to one's nature rather than to one's person. That would seem dubious if since William Lane Craig has no idea what person or nature means. That's why the council thought it was, if Christ's human nature lacked the faculty of will, it was not a true, complete human nature. By contrast, it seems to me almost obvious that the will is a faculty of a person. It is persons who have free will and exercise it and exercise it to choose this or that. If Christ's human nature had its own proper will, so that Christ had literally two wills, as the council affirmed, then there would be two persons, one human and one divine, which is exactly what I'm saying. But that is the heresy known as Nestorianism, which divides Christ's persons into two. He says, and I quote, I cannot understand how Christ's human nature could have a will of its own distinct from the will of the second person of the Trinity and not be a person. That's saying, Craig is saying. And I think the reason I'm not stopping and commenting much is I think with once you lay out those proper definitions and then apply those proper definitions to the case that I think in listening to the rest of this video, you can just, you can just see how it, how the dominoes fall. It's, it's relatively uh, not simple, but it's relatively uh, easy. Uh, once, once you've been inculcated into uh, the Catholic faith 
into the, the truth in which our fathers have handed down to us. How could Christ's human nature be complete in having a soul, spirit, and body, and a human will of its own, and yet not call that a human person? He's saying if Christ had all of those components, then sure, assuredly he would be two persons, one human person and one divine person. Yet Chalcedon denies that because they deny Nestorianism. Okay, So this is the problem. So Craig, how does he avoid this? He says that Christ didn't have a human will because people or persons have wills and human natures don't. Okay, The will is attributed to persons, not natures. Okay, So that's just an example of uh, illustrating that what the problem is here, the two, what I've deemed the two-person problem. Okay, so don't make it seem like it's only for me. Other Christians have recognized this and sought to deal with this a different way. But yet, as you've seen in the last video, hopefully, Craig's view leads to other problems of Christ not being fully human and so on. Okay, now, the uh, next issue that I'm going to discuss is who is the subject or person, okay, in Matthew 24, 34 to 36. There's only one subject, so the subject is the second person of the Trinity. Now, what does that verse say for those who aren't so familiar with it? I brought it up last time. It says, truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Talking about the end of the world. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So when speaking about knowledge of the final hour or the last day, the day of judgment, the son himself says, no man knows, the angels don't know, and the son does not know, but only the father knows. Now, typically, many Christians will say. So this gets into questions of dual predication, because <clears throat> I'm assuming by when he talks about what is the subject of, of uh, this predication, the son does not know that he's talking about um, according to which nature. So this the subject of predication is the second person of the Trinity in accordance with his human nature. Now. This actually gets a bit more complicated <clears throat> because uh, the fact that there is what's called the Agnoite heresy, which was condemned. Um, it, it wasn't formally condemned by council, but it was generally condemned by the consensus of theologians and of fathers. So there's two texts which really go into this that I want to go over. One of them is from Paul. Let's see if I can pull that one up. I'm just going to stop the video real quick. Then I'm going to go back to the poll text. Oh, it's not letting me. That jerk. Okay, let's. Okay, I will find another way how to pull it up. I'll just copy and paste it, honestly. Are you going to let me? It's not going to let me. Okay, I guess we will just go into the Newman text. I'm going to try something else. Let's see if this shares. This is live, folks. Okay, I'm just going to copy and paste it into a document and then share that. It's not letting me share logos on here, which is where I have poll on. Okay, sorry about this. Okay, so in regards to the Agnoite heresy, the question of whether 
Okay. Whether Christ knew the day or the hour. So let me share screen. And entitled document. There you go. So that should be showing up clear. Okay. <clears throat> so thesis two, and we're going to be jumping around this text a little bit. Besides the scientia beata, which is the beatific vision, beatific knowledge, the soul of Christ from the moment of its conception also possessed a knowledge immediately infused by God, scientia infusa. Proof, the beatific knowledge is the immediate or intuitive vision through the looming gloria, the light of glory of God and his creatures as mirrored in his essence. Infused knowledge is a knowledge of those creatures in themselves. Infused like beatific knowledge is independent of the senses, though it cannot dispense with individual concepts. So that may be very abstract, but basically um, it's affirmed in the Christian tradition that Christ had the beatific vision, which means that he saw the essence of God in his humanity, in his human intellect, from the moment of his conception, according to the capacity of his nature. So what that means is in that in the knowledge of the essence of God, we affirm that all things pre-exist in the divine intellect, which is his essence. Therefore, in knowing the essence of God, therefore, we know all things according to our capacity, because the intellect is contained is is the essence and the intellect contains uh, mere images of all things. So that's a very uh, quick and dirty sort of way of speaking about it. Okay, so let's get into specifically his question. Okay, first here, the human knowledge of Christ is relatively infinite in extent, i.e. it is the most, the highest, most complete knowledge which is possible for any creature to have in the present economy. Consequently, both with regard to natural and supernatural things, it is ideal of all knowledge. So notice, it's relatively infinite. So what we're not saying is that there's a mixing wherein the humanity of Christ has omniscience. What we're saying is that it is the highest and most complete knowledge which is possible for any creature in the present economy. That's what we say in accordance with his ability. Okay, so now he, right down here, so ecclesiastical tradition. This is very important. So ecclesiastical tradition favors the proposition that the soul of Christ had an inerrant, unerring, knowledge of all things past, present, and future, and that this knowledge positively excluded ignorance. But it is not so decisive on the question whether this knowledge is derived from the scantia beata, blah, blah. So though the main point of connection between the agnoite, which were those that said that Christ um, was ignorant, and the church has not yet been fully cleared up. So again, the church has not definitively spoken on this matter. The history of this heretical sect justifies certain important conclusions. So a certain sort of agnoetism was propagated by the Arians and also by the Nestorians, but the name of agnoite is commonly applied to a 6th century sect, this kind of small text, whose chief tenant is supposed to have been that Christ was ignorant of certain things, especially the day of judgment. So this exact question is why the agnoite heretics arose. 
It is, however, uncertain whether the subject to which they attributed this ignorance was the human nature of our Lord or a fictitious mon monophysic compound of divinity and humanity, whereas the monophysite opponents of Themistus, e.g. Timothy and Theos Theodosius, represent agnoetism as certainly, monophys certainly monophysite. The Severians and Nisphorius Callistus understood that as attributing ignorance to the sacred humanity of Jesus. In any case, it is certain that the champions of Catholic orthodoxy against the Agnoite rigorously excluded all error and ignorance from the human soul of Christ by ascribing to it a relative omniscience in regarding to all things actually existing due to its hypostatic union with the Logos. So very important right here. I'm going to bold this for you guys. Want you to just ingrain that in your minds. Agnoetism they regarded as a positive heresy. The most prominent and the ablest among these champions of Catholic Orthodoxy was Eulogius, Patriarch of Alexandria, who, according to Photius, taught that, and then Latin. Saint Sophronius. Okay, I'm gonna just skip over all the Latin stuff. I don't feel like translating on the spot. So, in point of fact, they're just getting together Catholic sources because notice all of the Catholics of the day, Pope Saint, even Pope Saint Gregory the Great, was denying that Christ, um, Christ was ignorant, and he even he calls them heretics. So, the last sentence is very important. In point of fact, though of monophysic. Oh my gosh, I can never pronounce this. Of monophysite origin, agnoetism is ultimately reducible either to Arianism, which clearly denies the divinity of Christ, or to Nestorianism, which rejects the hypostatic union. If Christ were a mere creature, as the Arians hold, he would necessarily be subject to ignorance and error. The same would follow from Nestorian Nestorian assumption that he was a person distinct from the omniscient Logos. It was for this reason, no doubt, that long before the time of Thamilius the African bishops compelled the Gallic monk Leoproius, who had incurred suspicion, to abjure agnoetism as heretical. Among other things in which Leoporus had gone astray is the question of the human knowledge of Christ. He states that when he had heard Christ charged with ignorance, he had always considered it a sufficient answer to say that the Lord was ignorant, secundum hominum, so according to humanity. But now he anathematized this opinion. So notice, even to say that Christ was ignorant, secundum hominum, according to humanity, is charged as heresy. So since according to ecclesiastical tradition, the relative omniscience of Christ as man has its source principle and measurement in the hypostatic union. It follows that it must have been begun simultaneously with the hypostatic union, i.e. at the moment of his conception. So very important um, before we go into specifically the interpretation of Mark 1332. So if you read um, St. John Henry Newman, um, he has a really good explanation about the specific mechanics of this that might be a little bit more understandable for you guys. Um, because this is a very uh, difficult concept to understand. Because many would say that this would be monophysitism, but it is not. Is this the right one? 
but this is okay. So this is from that book that I've been telling you guys about on the evolution of Catholic dogma. Ooh, and there's some cutoff. So it is well known among serious students of theology that some of the fourth century fathers spoke of the knowledge of Christ's soul in such a way as to suggest that they did not believe it to have been perfect from the moment of his conception in Mary's womb, which remember is heretical, but to have begun growing as he advanced in age, as the evangelist says, it is Catholic dogma that the man or human nature assumed by the word did not have abstractly speaking or in first act, as they say, perfect knowledge, but that really, or in second act, he did have it because the man was deified in the word. Thus Christ as a man would never have been ignorant of anything a man could know. So there's, and then as Gregory the Great expresses, he knew in the nature, but not from the nature of his humanity. So there's just three ways in which we can think about it. First act and second act. So in the first act of his humanity, that is uh, per se, if you want to think about it that way, he was ignorant. But because of his union with the divinity and because of the deifying of the flesh in second act, which is an actuality, that uh, Christ uh, was infused uh, with, with the knowledge in which he had. And then second, we can think about it concretely and abstractly. So abstractly speaking, um, not thinking of the concrete uh, communication of attributes, which happens in Christ. Uh, Christ's humanity was ignorant, but in union with the divinity, it is infused with that knowledge according to his capacity. And then the third way is in and from. So I think this is the best way of thinking of it. So we knew in the nature, but not from the nature of his humanity. So the the um, the knowledge in which he had uh, that relative relative omniscience or in accordance with capacity was not from the nature of his humanity, but from the nature of his divinity. And that is it is an infused grace. So now let's get back to. Um, let's get back to a poll real quick to specifically talk about the interpretation of this verse. I hope this is interesting for you guys because I'm just dying over here of, of interesting. So the fathers differed in their interpretation of Mark 13, 32, but of the day or hour, no man knoweth neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but the father. So as long as it was necessary to combat the Arian heresy that the Logos was subject to ignorance because he was a creature, the fathers confined themselves defending Christ's divine nature against the charge of ignorance. And some passages in their writings create the impression that they did not, they did it at the expense of his sacred humanity. And Newman brings this up in the rest of that chapter, but since we're already at an hour and a half, I won't go through the rest of that chapter. Leonetius, Byzantius, again, I just mentioned him, very important to read. In his controversies with the Agnoite, went so far as to admit that the testimony of the earlier fathers was practically worthless in consequence of their having made this mistake. Eulogius excused them on the plea that if sundry fathers have admitted ignorance of the humanity of our Savior, they have not set it down as an article of faith, but made this admission merely to reject the folly of the Arians, who shifted all human attributes to the divinity in order to prove the divine logos as a creature. Batavius takes a similar view, while Suarez, this other guy and this other guy, vigorously defend the orthodoxy of the earlier fathers. So again, this is still an open question. 
about uh, the earlier fathers, although the ones that are closest to the sources, Leonetius and Eulogius, uh, both basically say, yeah, they, they erred, and then Newman also. So now here are going to be the scope of interpretations. So some of the fathers explain Mark 13.32 in a mystic sense, referring to Christ's ignorance to his mystical body, i.e. the church. Others have that when Christ said he did not know the day of judgment, he meant that he had no knowledge which he was free to communicate. Scientia communicabalis. Sorry, I just butchered that Latin, meaning a communicable knowledge nor any knowledge derived from his human intellect abstracting from the hypostatic union. So again, we can say, we can gloss this text, Mark 13, 32, that he did not know the day and the hour from his human nature. That's an appropriate gloss to make. Or we could gloss it otherwise, that he did not know the day or the hour in such a sense that he was able to communicate it or that he was at liberty to communicate it. Or in even a third sense, we can say that he did not know the day and the hour in that, in that predicate, he, um, meaning that subject, he, he is actually speaking of him in accordance with his mystical body, which goes back to um, Augustine's De Doctrina Christiana, where he uh, uses that next Jesus, that sometimes when Christ is talking about him, he's talking about his body, which is the church, so that the church is ignorant of this. So of these three interpretations, the second and third are simple and natural, whereas the first strikes one as factitious. Factitious. Oh my gosh, I'm butchering words today. It is perfectly consonant with the economy of salvation as proclaimed by our Lord on other occasions, that the determination of the time of the last judgment should be reserved to the official, official sphere of the Father, and that the Son consequently had no right to reveal it. On the other hand, it is obvious that the humanity of Christ being a creature could not of itself know the hidden counsels of providence. Notice, not of itself, in another, from another. Though our Lord, no doubt, possessed this knowledge by and through the hypostatic union, because he was the son of man, destined to be the judge of the living and the dead. Okay, so that really goes over this verse. So let's get back to the video at hand. After that brief intermission. So again, I hope you guys are noticing this is a lot more complicated than he's he's leading you to believe. Although I don't think it's out of malice. Again, I don't want to impute malice to Jake. Well, the son himself says, no man knows, the angels don't know, and the son does not know, but only the father knows. Now, typically, many Christians will say, well... Um, well, this means uh, that the son in his incarnate state did not know the hour, okay? But the question is, who is the subject or person in Matthew 24? The subject is God in accordance with his humanity. If you want to take it in a certain sense, which um, would not condemn, agnotis the agno condemn agnoticism as a heresy, which is acceptable because the magisterium is not definitively spoken. Or you could take the text as saying something completely different. But this gets us into a bigger question of the uh, communicatio idiomatum, because we can speak of the subject being uh, God, but predicated according to his humanity. For example, we can speak of, um, and St. Cyril speaks in this exact way, of God sucking at uh, the Virgin Mary's breast, of God um, 
being a little baby of of God suffering impassively, of God dying. All of these statements we can absolutely say because the subject is God according to his humanity. Just like in Romans 1, it talks about Christ being the seed of David according to his humanity. Just like Peter talks about Christ suffering in the flesh. Notice, it, it's analogously, if I said um, that, I don't know, say I hurt my, um, that I got hurt, the statement that I got hurt. And let's say um, it was my hand that was hurt, that my, my hand got burnt in a fire. So I got burnt. Would we? Would you say, well, no, of course, you're being silly. You can't say that you were burnt. It was your hand that was burnt. Well, although properly speaking, I was burnt according to my hand, the subject of that statement is still I, the hypostasis, because you can speak of the individual, and then you can speak of it as a whole. Um, you can speak of parts and as a whole, because the humanity is a part of the hypostasis. 36. Who is the subject of the ignorance of the hour? God. Now, this coincides with the two-person problem, because if you say that the human nature, okay, which is what Christians usually do, they say the ignorance is applied to the human nature, okay? So that means his human nature is the subject in Matthew 24, 36. But if you do that, then that means his human nature was sufficient for personhood and winds you back. No, because we're saying that... No. If you... If you're going to read um, any Orthodox Christian, none of them are going to say that the that the humanity is itself a subject. They'll say that God is the subject according to His humanity. You see this in uh, the Tome of Pope Saint Leo. What is that barking? It's so annoying. You'll say that the um, that the uh, sorry, I've just been just got distracted really bad. So you can say that the, um, as Pope St. Leo says in his tome, that it's the form of God in the form of man. So um, that the single hypostasis in the form of his humanity suffers, and then in the form of his uh, divinity is impassable. You can speak of it in those terms, which is directly uh, from Philippians. But again, the subject everybody agrees upon is one, although we predicate in different senses. And even uh, I was reading uh, uh, Severus of Antioch, who is a famous Miaphysite. Even he speaks in language such as this. Um, and then even Cyril, you'll see in, uh, let's go over here. Cyril's 12 anathemas, anathema one. If anyone will not confess that the Emmanuel is very God and that therefore the Holy Virgin is the mother of God in as much or insofar or according to as in the flesh she bore the word of God made flesh. Let him be anathema. So notice, notice, notice that that is the case. And then again, the fourth anathema. So all these things are anathematized that you're imputing to Christians. Number four, if anyone shall divide between the two persons or subsistences, those expressions which are contained in the evangelical and apostolic writings, which have been said concerning Christ by the saints or by himself, and shall apply some to him as to a man separate from the word of God, and shall apply others to the only word of God, the Father, on the grounds that they are fit to be applied to God, let it be anathema. So notice it's okay to have dual predication, as St. Cyril himself does but it's not okay to have two subjects. That is not okay at all. I think there's another anathema, which is 
which is uh, appropriate to this, but I can't see it right now. Yeah, I can't see it right now. So let's continue. Back up with the in-person problem. If you say that his divine nature was the subject of... Um, or Natures aren't subjects. Natures aren't subjects. Natures aren't subjects. Persons are subjects. Natures can't be subjects of anything. Persons are subjects. That the sun was the subject of the ignorance of the hour. Then you wind up with the problem of saying, well, the, the divine side of Christ either lost... Um, this information of the day of judgment or he never had it okay and that gets you into the problem of well the christ wasn't true the divinity retains the information about this complete and entire and again this also goes back to the misunderstanding of a person as a self-conscious agent this that that presupposition is underlying this entire argumentation really divine because as we know in scripture in um the quran and the bible uh you can't rightly be called god unless you're all-knowing and that's what the whole trial of the false gods were about in Isaiah. It was that um, the false gods of the people could not prophesize about the future and tell you why things in the past happened, but yet the true God could. So if so, again, um, very important, very important. Uh, we would say the Christian would respond that when we're talking about um, God being all knowing, God having omniscience, and this is absolute omniscience, not the relative omniscience that is had by the Son. Uh, according to his humanity, but absolute omniscience is predicated to the divine nature. That is an attribute of the divine nature. Well, that does not necessarily mean that the um, that the hypostases um, cannot take upon itself a second nature. You don't have all knowledge of future events and can tell why things in the past happened, then you can't rightly be called God according to the Bible and the Quran. So if the divine nature was a subject or person, um, your brothers and sisters with disabilities are literally being carried up these stairs. So Reference in the verses that I just quoted about uh, Christ or the son's ignorance, then he couldn't rightly be called God. Okay, But if you deem it to his human nature, then you back up with the two-person problem. And now about this in the, in the book that I just quoted before, The Metaphysics of the Incarnation, um, one Christian theologian says about the no-person objection. He says, granted that, the, that God the Son is insulated from physical or emotional changes that his human nature experiences, we can ask the further question, if Christ weeps over Lazarus, who is the subject of this Who is the subject of this action? Act the person of Lagos is the subject in accordance with his humanity. Who is the subject of the weeping? Now, my mine was in relevance to the subject of um, not knowing the hour, okay? But he brings it up in, a, in a, the same problem, but in related to a different attribute of um, emotional change. He says, who is the subject of this action? Who is the person weeping over Lazarus? Notice this is talking about impassibility, but uh, the uh, Cyril will strictly speak of um, God as suffering impassibly. So he's suffering in accordance with his humanity and impassible according to his divinity. So single subject, dual predication. Very important to recognize. Okay, he says, not God the Son, as has already been established. He is insulated from all that it, his human nature undergoes. He is incapable of suffering. He says, not Christ, because Christ is not a person on the Chalcedonian model. Okay, he says, nor can it be that Christ's human nature is a person on pain of Nestorianism, which I, which I just brought up. So that would be Heck. his human nature undergoes. Not God the Son, as has already been established. He is insulated from all um, emotional change. He says, who is the subject of this action? Who is the person weeping over Lazarus? Okay, he says, not God the Son. Not God the Son. You're reading a heretic. 
as has already been established. He is insulated from all that it, his human nature undergoes. He is incapable of suffering. He is incapable of suffering in his nature, in his uh, in his divine nature. But in his humanity, surely he suffers. This this man that you're reading is an Nestorian. That's why the Chalcedonian Christology seems Nestorian to you, because he is a Nestorian. He says, not Christ, because Christ is not a person. Um, that depends on what you mean by Christ. The Chalcedonian model, okay? He says, nor can it be that Christ's human nature is a person on pain of Nestorianism. His suffering in his nature, in his human nature. So... It's predicable to his, it's predicable to his uh, human nature, but the subject of that is still the hypostasis of the Lagos. What I, which I just brought up. So that would be, lead you to the two-person problem. He says, so Christ's human nature is also discounted from being the subject of the weeping, weeping reported in John eleven thirty-five. 35. But then it appears that no person is, this, uh, is the subject of the weeping. The same thing goes for what I just said about the ignorance of the son in uh, Matthew 24, 36. Who is the subject or person of Matthew 24, 36? If you say it's his divinity, well, you can't say that because then he wasn't truly God because God is an ignorant. If you say that it was his humanity, then you wind up with the two-person problem and Nestorianism, which is heresy, okay? So you're really left with a problem that is unsolvable, okay? It's solvable with true Chalcedonian uh, definitions. It's solvable, again, because it is the Lagos suffering in accordance with his humanity, which is the Lagos' proper, um, proper nature insofar as he has two natures. Now, let's take a look at the backside here. Okay. Now, again, um, I'm only going on the standard definitions related to the Creed of Chalcedon in 451. And notice you think you're going off of the standard definitions of Chalcedon, but you're not. All right. And like I said before, I don't mean the Chalcedonians as a derogatory term or anything of uh, the such. Um, but the, the problems I posed here, okay, was that you can't say it's just a mystery because I'm giving an argument to show that it's logical contradiction. You can't just give no explanation at all because that's just a cop-out. All right, so you've got to give an answer to, or at least attempt to give an answer to the two-person slash no-person problem, okay? Now, however you want to define personhood or what is sufficient for personhood, just plug it in here in premise one, and then ask yourself, did Christ have that, okay? Because what we're saying here, to make this really clear for folks, all right? What we're saying here is that this is the son prior to the incarnation, the son. He was a person, one person. Mm -hmm. The incarnation is a matter of addition, not subtraction. So this was not subtracted from, but he mm -hmm. added something to himself. What did he add? A human soul slash spirit, however you want to understand that, and human body. Now the question is, is this a person? Is no, take that little circle right there and put it inside of that circle with the the some person thing. That's that's how you solve this problem. Just take the one circle, put it inside the other circle, because the human nature is an hypostatic. It does not have a hypostasis of itself, and it is in hypostasized in the hypostasis of the son, or as you would say, person. Is this a person. 
It is not a person in itself. It is a person in the hypostasis of the sun. And just for Dr. Craig's sake, a human will. Human will be part of the soul. So it's superfluous to add that. Now, Craig doesn't agree that he says, look, if Christ had all these things, then this equals one person. And if you got that, then what does that equal? Two persons. See? So this is the Chalcedonian problem. They say Christ had this and Christ had this, but one plus one equals one. That's where the contradiction is. Craig it's not a contradiction because there's equivocations in your definitions. He says, no, you guys are fools. It's got to be that he was two persons if he had this. So what does Craig do? He eliminates the human soul, spirit, and human will. And says that Christ just had a human body. So it was more of an indwelling of the second person of the Trinity, Trinity just indwelling the human body. And this is really pure Cartesianism, pure, undiluted Cartesianism. Right? Now, let's discuss here what, what the definitions are. Okay, the Chalcedonians adhere to the creed that Christ is one person with two complete natures, divine and human. What is a nature? A nature is that which makes a thing what it is, okay? What is a horse? What makes a horse a horse? What makes a human being a human being? Uh, Aristotle is famous for saying that a human being is differentiated from other animals because a human being is a rational animal. So what makes a human being, or what is the nature of a human being? It is to be a rational animal. I would say quiddity is a pretty good. I'd say it's a good working definition. Okay. Now you can disagree with that, but you choose whatever you want. That's not the point. I'm just going over what these terms mean in terms of uh, Christianity and how they're being used. All right. Now, what is a person? That's a big question. Some Christians will say a subsistence, a self-conscious agent, etc. But whatever it is, however you answer this question, the second question you have to ask, ask yourself, uh, Christians, is did Christ have that? And if he did... Yes, he had that. And his both natures were subsisting in one person. If he was a self-conscious human agent, which he was, then that means he was one. No, it does not mean that because we don't define person by self-conscious agent. We're not uh, Freudians or Cartesians. Oh, it's another sucky ad. And then you got Nestorianism, which they reject. So a good way for you to think about this is for Christians and Muslims, do you remain a person after death before receiving the resurrected body. I am so glad you asked that. I am very glad you asked that. Let I'm, I'm going to let you continue, but I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. Okay, Because Christians believe that when they die, they will go to be with the Lord and uh, exist in an uh, unembodied state. So the soul or spirit, the immaterial part of man, will exist with God uh, okay, in heaven before the resurrected uh, body um, before they get their resurrected body, and that will take place at the Day of Judgment when their body will be resurrected and be joined with their human soul. Okay, Paul explicitly states this in uh, 1 Corinthians. Now, the question is, in that unembodied state, do you remain a person? No. No, you actually don't re remain a person. This is why I'm so glad he asked this. Let's, let's, let's pull it. I wish I had Jamie here to pull it up for me, but let's, let's pull it up. No, the, the Christian tradition has unequivocally denied that you uh, that you remain a complete person. As crazy as that sounds, let's let's look at St. Thomas um, in Sententium, Liber 3, Distinction 5, Question 3, uh, Article 2, um, his said contra right here. So I'm going to 
share my screen real quick. This is what I've been waiting for the entire video. This this is going to blow your guys' mind. I've been blowing your guys' mind left and right in this one. After I talked about the Akinoate, you guys are you guys are convinced I'm crazy. So St. Thomas directly um, answers this question, whether a separated soul is a person. Said contra, no form is a person. Remember, the soul is a form of the person. But the soul is a form, therefore it is not a person. Furthermore, person has the account of something complete and whole. But a soul is a part. It is so soul is really that's one of the two substances which form the nature of humanity therefore the soul does not have the account of a person i answer that concerning the union of soul and body there are two opinions among the ancients one is that the soul is united to the body as a complete being to be a, to to a complete being so that it would be in a body like a sailor in a ship this is why as gregor of nazianzu says plato held that man is not something can constituted of a body and soul but rather he is a soul dressed with a body and this is denied we are not platonists in regard to our anthropology and according to this the whole person note of a man would consist in his soul to the extent that a separated soul could be truly called a man as hugh of saint victor says and according to this opinion what the master says would be true that a soul is a person even when it is separated but this opinion cannot stand this opinion cannot stand for then the soul would come to the soul incidentally for then the soul would come to the soul incidentally and thus this word man the understanding of which is a soul and a body would not signify anything one through itself but only incidentally and then it would not be in the genus of substances so really what you would have here is weirdly enough you would have some person inhabiting some tent of flesh, which is not the Christian view of anthropology. The other opinion is that of Aristotle, which all the moderns follow. And ironically, by moderns, he means people of his day, not the people of our day, because all the moderns actually, weirdly enough, if, if you're going to talk about thought and extension like Descartes, <clears throat> or if you're gonna it, it's really honestly in in our in our modern in our modern environment they take a weirdly platonic view of of what the soul is even while the, denying a soul they don't think the body is too important but catholics think the body is very important and is um incremental in uh in personhood the other opinion is that of aristotle which all the moderns follow which is that the soul is united to the body as form to matter thus the soul is a part of human nature not a nature in itself and since the notion of a part is contrary to the notion of a person, as has been said, for this reason, the separated soul cannot be called a person. For although when it is separated, it, it is not a part in act. Nevertheless, it does not have the nature of being a part. So I'm so glad you brought that up because this, this lends me to, uh, to bring up this very um, misunderstood and ignored part of catholic theology so um let's get back to the video and we're almost done this has been almost two hours and i'm so glad you guys are you guys are sticking with me okay when you die and you're just a soul or spirit the immaterial part of yourself after death before receiving the resurrected body are you a person no now of course it's obvious that the answer is yes what does that mean then that means the soul or spirit the immaterial part of itself is what sufficient for personhood. And again, just because something is sufficient doesn't mean it's actual, but I do deny the premise that, yes, a person after death is a person. Well, a soul after death is a person. That means you don't even have to worry about the human body, right? No, 
We're not as Platonists. As We're not Cartesians. A human soul. Okay. Then that's enough to be one person. Metaphysics in the incarnation. I'm going to call this Christology through the eyes of Descartes and through Freud. No, 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 no. All right. Now that's clear from this example. If you say no to this, well, then now you've got the absurdity of existing as not a person. And I don't have the absurdity because it's not a person. Unembodied state, which doesn't make any sense. Okay. Makes sense. Now, this is why, obviously, Craig has to deny that Christ had a human soul. And why does he deny that Christ had a human will? Because the will is a component of the soul in classical theology. Okay. The will is derived from the soul or spirit, the immaterial part of the man, not from the, um, not from the physical or material part of man. Okay, so this is why Craig has to deny that Christ had this. All right. Now, just in closing, I'd like uh, to challenge my Christian friends in a friendly manner. I mean, no disrespect, but I'd like for you guys to think more deeply about these issues and deal with them on an academic level as I'm attempting to do so. Deal with the two-person problem. Deal with the no-person problem. Let's see if you guys can withstand the criticism. Don't give me this mystery or no explanation nonsense, because this whole book, which I just read out of the metaphysics of the incarnation and what Craig is attempting to do, they're attempting to give answers to the problem. They say that this is a problem. Craig, in his introduction in his chapter to uh, regarding the incarnation, says if anything in Christianity is a logical contradiction like a square circle, it is the doctrine of the incarnation. So I'm not just blowing. That's why William Lane Craig is a blasphemous heretic. Smoke out here, folks. This is a big problem that needs to be dealt with. Now, I hope that you enjoyed this. My Muslim friends, please subscribe to my channel. I hope you can. Yes, and uh, I believe I took up the challenge and um, classical um, Christian Christology has the answer. Chalcedon has the answer. So, are there any um, are there any questions that you guys have? Um, if not, I will I will go. But I'm going to briefly look through the chat. But before that. Um, if you guys are really appreciated this because I just put in two hours for you guys on Valentine's day, wife is going to kill me. Just kidding. She won't kill me. Um, you guys should become patrons, uh, patreon.com slash militant Thomas. If you really like what I'm doing, I look forward to doing more videos, uh, against Muslims, um, trying to create some dialogue. So let us look through the chat. Okay. Okay, so would we say body and soul are not necessary, not necessary, are necessary, but not sufficient for human personhood? Correct. A, a nature is not per se um, sufficient for human personhood, but there needs to be that individualization of the nature. And then also that principle, which, uh, which Lagrange talks about. And the other Paul asked, would you debate the Muslim metaphysician on this? Um, yes, but on the condition that it's... Uh, after the manner of a disputation and not after sophistic debates that happen online. I'm not interested in any of that. So I'm going to wait to give you guys a minute because I know it takes a minute to catch up on the live stream. Okay. And while I do that, remember discord is very important. So I will share that discord. 
hope you guys are appreciating everything I'm doing. If you guys think I should be doing different stuff or uh, have any suggestions, please, please, please let me know. I don't want to be doing stuff you guys aren't interested in. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to help you guys out and to uh, to know God, to know his works, and to be able to defend um, these propositions of Catholic theology. I'll give you guys like 30 more seconds. So Leonard says these deep dives are great. Oh yeah, I gave you guys plenty of lore, plenty of stuff to think about. Um, I'm glad you guys really enjoy it. Because even like as much as I love reason and theology and stuff, like this, this is super deep dive. This isn't normal. Like he does deep dive. This is this is double deep dive. And I'm hoping that I can do these deep dives when it comes to these pop objections to the Christian faith, generally speaking, and then also particularly to uh, to Roman Catholicism. I've also seen a, uh, a video against transubstantiation that I'd like to go against. So if you guys are interested in that, just let me know. Or send me videos that you would like me to respond to on, on a deep dive level. I'd love to do it. All it takes from me is to remember some places in Thomas and then boom, present it, and then go at the video. Okay, I think that's all. I don't see any other questions in the chat. So thank you guys. Remember to subscribe. Let's see if I can hit six, 600 today. Um, that would be great. So if you're watching and haven't subscribed, make sure you subscribe. And then also please, uh, please share. Um, I don't normally say that, but uh, sharing on your social media is very important to, uh, to getting the word out and to uh, helping, helping this little project of mine succeed. So uh, love you guys. Um, make sure you love God. That's all I have to say and know him and keep the faith. Goodbye. Glory.